You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. National security officials have announced that Iran and Russia obtained voter registration data that could be used to threaten voters and sow confusion this election, paying particular attention to Iran's activities. But cybersecurity experts, according to the New York Times, say Russia remains the more dangerous threat to the integrity of the 2020 election. We look at the latest foreign attempts at election interference and put into perspective the risks they pose. We're joined by David Sanger, national security correspondent and senior writer for the New York Times. There's also a new HBO documentary based on Sanger's 2018 book on cyber warfare titled The Perfect Weapon. Thanks so much for joining us, David Sanger. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me back to KQED. So I want to begin with Iran, because that's what the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, paid attention to last week, Iran's involvement in these faked emails threatening voters. Can you talk a little bit more about what they're up to? Well, what we saw were some emails that weren't terribly artful, uh, written to some voters in Florida and Alaska. There may have been elsewhere, but those were the ones that we saw that pretended to be from the Proud Boys, the far far right um, activist group, and basically said to voters, we know who you are. We know that you're registered as a Democrat. We can see your votes, which they can't. And um, we're coming for you if you don't vote for Trump. So um, hard to know exactly how this would play. Maybe the Iranians, because we were told right away this appeared to be Iranian product, and we'll get back to to how we might know that in a, in a moment. Um, uh, maybe they thought that, uh, you know, as it, it would hurt Trump because it would look like uh, a group supporting him, the Proud Boys, were, um, were uh, uh, threatening voters. Uh, there's no particular evidence this did come from the Proud Boys. In fact, the Proud Boys themselves have, have indicated that. There is a fair bit of evidence that it was routed through some servers in the Middle East, mostly Saudi Arabia, and then one, some in Estonia. Um, and uh, the speed at which the Director of National Intelligence came out and identified these suggests that what they were trying to do was head off additional Iranian uh, activity. The more we dug into this, the more it became clear that whoever did it, presumably the Iranians, didn't require any hacking skills to get at these records, mm. that uh, the, they could have gotten the names and the email addresses from um, some open data uh, you know, registration that you can go and, and look up as public, as public information. Um, so the rest of it may have well been bluff, uh, part of something called a perception hack, which we can discuss in a little bit. Yeah. But that's what we know about it. We also know that the Russians have uh, repurposed an extremely talented hacking group called Energetic Bear, which mostly is focused on utility companies. And they've gone after state and local governments in the past two months, but not, interestingly enough, not directly at uh, election systems. I see. So what you're describing is this email thing that has been attributed to Iran. You're saying it wasn't a hack and it probably relied on publicly available information anyway. But there's also this Russian activity going on that uh, they're poking around some very important and vulnerable places. But why is who, the, the groups that are doing this, alarming security experts, the Russian groups? 
On the Russian groups, it's because this group Energetic Bear, which is linked to the FSB, one of the Russian intelligence services and a successor to the KGB, um, is a very talented group. They're the ones who have gotten into the U.S. utility companies. Uh, They're sort of the A-team of Russian hackers. Uh, Their group was so good that, as we reported last year, uh, United States Cyber Command uh, decided over a period of years to put um, code into Russian utilities, um, electric power grid, so forth, that would was some of which was designed to be found so that they could say to the Russians, hey, you thinking about turning off the, the lights in uh, San Francisco? Because just know that we know how to do the same in St. Petersburg, kind of classic deterrence kind of thing. Mm. Um, When we published this, interestingly enough, President Trump immediately tweeted about our story and said that the New York Times had published uh, national security information, that it was a virtual act of treason. I don't think he read down into that part of the piece where we described how we had uh, described our findings to his own National Security Council, and they had no objections to our publishing it because the Russians already knew about this code. Uh, A few minutes later, he then tweeted that the story was also wrong, uh, which might have been that somebody came by and told him that he had just sort of, in the first tweet, confirmed our our account. Um, uh, But uh, separate and apart from that, um, what this tells you is that the Russians wanted us to see that the group that they consider among the best of the best is now in state and local governments. They did get a little bit of registration data. We're not entirely sure where, but we're told they got it incidentally because they went into a, a, a database, into a, a local government where they ended up hitting some registration stuff that wasn't clear they were necessarily looking for. Mm. They do not so far appear to have directly targeted uh, the registration systems. Maybe they want to make a lateral move closer to election day. If so, you'd see that in the next few days. Maybe they want to sit this one out, but have us spooked along the way. I see. So you feel like this sort of lurking around the state and local systems, they intended for us to see it and potentially spook it. Well, they know that this is group is very closely followed. Hmm. And it does not appear that they did a huge amount to hide their tracks. And that's a frequent, a frequent case in cyber, in sort of low level cyber conflict. You know, we, our minds tend to go to, you know, highly secretive cyber war. And certainly if you were going to use cyber as the first step in say a military attack, you know, we have a take out a power grid first and then you bomb the country or something like that you would want to be as stealthy as possible. But there are moments in cyber where you actually want to be seen because the whole intent of this is to sort of a psychological warfare game where you want somebody nervous that you're inside their system. And is that what you mean also in part by a perception hack? I mean, it's not just on the level, I guess, of the the federal officials and cybersecurity experts, but I know it can range anywhere from that all the way to just generally uh, the population, the perception among the population that uh, the election is potentially sabotaged by foreign actors or can be. 
That, that's right. And the election lends itself to perception hack kind of activity. And we described this at, at some length um, in the docu- the HBO documentary, The, the, the Perfect yes. Weapon. Um, and basically it would work like this. Let's say um, hackers got into a couple of towns in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Minnesota. Imagine any vulnerable uh, swing state, right? And they managed to lock up the registration system so that when you go in to vote, uh, you are not able to um, register or they can't find your registration or they indicate that you've moved to Arizona or retired to Florida. In other words, either lock it up or change the data in a way to make it hard for you to to register. Remember, registration systems are more vulnerable than the voting machines because Mm -hmm. Uh, They're online. The voting machines obviously are not. Um, And then if you're successful in two or three towns, it makes it possible for somebody to claim, maybe even for the president to claim, that the entire um, state has been hacked. You know, when in fact it's just been a couple of cities or towns or a couple of districts in those cities and towns. And... um, considering the president has already been saying that the only way he could lose would be if, if the election is rigged against him, um, you could imagine, depending on what the results look like uh, a week from Tuesday, that um, he might find it to his advantage to say, we need a full investigation. We can't name the electors from this state or that state until we understand whether the entire state was hacked because it looks like the whole thing was rigged. Hmm. And that would be a perception hack. In other words, making it look like you've done more than you really have. We're talking with David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times. He's the author of The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. And a new documentary based on the book is now streaming on HBO. So perception hacks then can potentially be just as harmful as real hacks. But but that said, there has been some concern raised that, you know, energetic bear lurking in the state and local websites could do things like maybe maybe do something to the power grid, like shut off power to key precincts or maybe mess with websites or pulling offline databases that verify signatures on vote by mail ballots and things like that. How concerned are you about those kinds of things happening? Those all could. And let's sort of unpack them. Yeah. Um, if you were to turn the power off, if you could, in a swing state, you could ima- imagine the chaos you could cause. I mean, first of all, you know, traffic lights aren't working. People are less likely to go out at night and so forth and so on. But secondly, the polling places, the lights would be out. And most voting machines these days require electric power. So unless those voting locations have some kind of backup generators, you could put that out of business and you can imagine just the chaos and the anger that would, that would cause. Uh, now, it's possible that some voting places, um, ones that are well-prepared, have backup generators or have um, you know that great high-tech backup called pen and paper. And you could mark, you could mark a ballot by paper um, the way we did in this country from 1788 until the invention of the voting machine, right? Um, so, uh, you know, there are ways around this, but that is certainly 
uh, one risk that uh, one would have. Um, second part, ransomware. Um, you've seen Atlanta, Baltimore, little towns in Florida and Texas uh, where the city government has been frozen up by ransomware that basically locks up their data so people mm -hmm. couldn't get building permits or pay their taxes or pay parking fines or yes whatever. kqed actually knows ransomware quite intimately <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I, I bet you do <laughs> i bet you do um and you know sometimes cities and towns don't want to pay the ransom uh because um on principle it's a bad idea if you pay the ransom you're sort of encouraging the activity baltimore decided not to pay the ransom and ended up spending about $15 million, uh, as we described in the documentary, rebuilding their data systems. Um, right. I've seen towns in Florida uh, that did pay the ransom um, and got their data back. There's no assurance if you get your data back. You're, uh, there's no assurance if you pay the ransom, you will get your data back. So um, the concern here is that you would that, that somebody would lock up the registration data. And so you'd go in to uh, vote and they couldn't register you. So that's why the Department of Homeland Security, which has been on top of this problem for more than a year, has been urging polling places to print out their data as soon as the registration closes so that you could go in and be checked off the old fashioned way on paper, just from a printout of the registration. Um, so there are ways around all of these things, but of course, what the hackers are looking for is simply to sow chaos and establish that we can't operate a functional democracy by doing the most basic thing, which is voting. Well, it sounds like, as you say, there are some ways, some old fashioned ways, actually, that elections officials can try to get around the attempts to sow chaos. And also, as you pointed out, there are ways that the federal government has let Russia know that they don't want to be poking around in our systems a la 2018 uh, when things are pretty quiet. And, and your your documentary does go into what you know the U.S. was able to do to basically warn the Russians that they don't want to be doing this and messing with us in 2018. It sounds like it would be much harder to try to counter a perception of hacking, right? Um, what are the ways that we can address this? I mean, I go back and forth between feeling like we're already there, like we're so primed um, to basically believe uh, that foreign countries have played some kind of role, that anything that happens could be viewed in that way. I mean, is this reversible? Well, well you know, the evidence of that came in Iowa. And there's a scene in the documentary. We had our, our camera crews out during the Iowa caucuses. And, you know, the Iowa caucuses, given, you know, COVID and all everything else that's happened, seem about four million years ago. But uh, when they happened just this this past winter, You'll may, you may remember that uh, in a well-intentioned effort to try to um, get caucuses organized for people in bad weather and all that kind of thing, they put together a new app that went on your phones to help you organize the uh, caucuses in Iowa. And they hadn't tested it sufficiently and it crashed in the middle of the whole thing, right? So all of a sudden, nobody knew where they were supposed to go, where they were supposed to caucus, how they could go cast their votes. It took forever to figure out where the, what the caucus outcomes were. Um, 
And the immediate thought that people had was that the Russians did this. The Russians had nothing to do with this. But it tells you, as you just said, that the, where our minds are so primed that way. Happened again a few weeks ago on the last day of, of re being able to register to vote in Virginia when somebody with a backhoe cut through a telecommunications line that connected up to the Secretary of State's office computer systems that would enable you to go, you, you, that you needed to connect to when you went online to go register to vote. Again, no indication that any foreign power had anything to do with it, right? I mean, the, the most common uh, the, the most common explanation for things like this are usually accident or incompetence. Uh, but in these in these particular cases, that's exactly um, what everybody uh, went through, which was um, uh, wondering for a few hours whether or not they'd been hacked. They got the thing back online. The judge extended the registration hours. Everything worked out fine. But that was the problem. Yes. And I mean, basically, exactly what Russians and other nations would love is to shake confidence in the integrity of the vote. And these kinds of things happen and freak people out. You know, one of the things I read in this foreign policy piece was that, you know, one of the ways to try to... Um, to defend against this sort of perception hacking and how primed we are is for the government to be sending messages about how secure our voting systems really are, how difficult it really is to change vote tallies. But obviously, that's not what our government is doing, especially our president. Yeah, well, actually, it is what your government is doing, but not what your president is doing. Okay. So, you know, the, the responsibility for the integrity of the actual vote uh, belongs to the cities and towns and states. Every state does it differently. And that's part of what makes it so hard to hack. We don't have a single um, uh, federal system. So, you know, it would be easier in, say, a European country to go hack, do one hack that affects the entire country because they run the voting Similarly, our system is so dispersed, so backward, and so old that it's actually safe. Okay. <laughs> well, so. we're coming up on a break, David Sanger, but we'll get more into that and also just how things have played out so far in 2020 right after the break. We also want to hear from you, our listeners. How concerned are you about foreign interference in this election? Have you been sent suspicious election information over social media? And what are your questions about how to guard against foreign election disinformation? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with David Sanger, national security correspondent and senior writer for The New York Times, author of The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. And a new documentary based on the book is streaming on HBO now. You can join us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. And David Sanger, just before the break, you were talking about how our dispersed 
first election system actually helps us in some ways. But it sounds like in terms of the influence campaign that, uh, at least based on your reporting, that Russian, the Russians and other countries have had it a little bit easier on that end, in part because rather than, say, coming up with, you know, these creative disinformation uh, postings uh, four years ago, right now what they're doing is taking screenshots or quoting our own president in terms of sowing doubt in our election integrity. That's right. I mean, one of the oddities here is that you have um, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, to some degree the Director of National Intelligence, the NSA, the National Security Agency, U.S. Cyber Command, the cities and states, the secretaries of state, all saying, we've got this. We're watching. We're ready to counter activity. Your vote will be counted. The most important thing is that the vote happen the way it's supposed to happen. And then you have the president stepping out saying, this election is will be rigged if I don't win, right? Um, there are already people messing with it. Uh, mail-in ballots are uh, inherently fraudulent, for which there is no evidence, right? Um, and uh, or mass mail-in ballots, he's, he's saying, are inherently are inherently fraudulent. And um, so his message is running counter to what the rest of his government is saying. We've never seen anything quite like this, mm. and he will not say that he will, um, you know, agree to uh, transition based on the result. He says, we'll have to wait and see, leaving him the option to declare, if he concludes he should, that either the mail-in ballots or some form of foreign interference or some evidence of possible interference, foreign or domestic, has altered the vote. Well, to this point, uh, Lady tweets, I'm sadly more concerned about election interference by Trump, the RNC, and the GOP through voter suppression and the Supreme Court. I mean, does Letty have a point here? Well, um, voter suppression is, you know, one very big issue, and that has to do with, you know, sending out misinformation about when you can vote, where you can vote, who's eligible to vote and so forth. So there's there's one category. Domestic intimidation is another category. That's when the president said that, urged uh, during one of the debates that his people should watch the vote very carefully. That could, but was interpreted by some as encouraging people to show up at the polls in an intimidating manner. There are rules and regulations in most states about what poll watchers can do, how far politicking has to be separated from the actual polling place, you know, so forth and so on. So that'll be a second category. Foreign interference, which we were discussing before, is a third category. And that is everything from making sure that the machines are safe, which I'm less worried about, the registration system is safe, which I have many more worries about, as we discussed, and that the count is safe. Remember, after you have counted things, it then has to get reported up through a central system. And you might say, what could go wrong there? Well, almost everything, because it's an unofficial count, right? It's going through a, a electronic transmission, which can be altered. And um, in the book version of The Perfect Weapon, I describe what the Russians did in Ukraine in 2014, when they actually got into the reporting system to try to make it reported that their favorite candidate won. 
Now, the Ukrainians caught on to this and reported accurate results. They only caught on the last minute. If you went and listened to the news reports in Russia, delivered in Russian, they reported the other candidate won. Wow. And as you've also described in the book, Ukraine is really a petri dish for the Russians in terms of the types of things that they try to do and see and pilot, potentially. That's exactly right. In fact, that chapter is called Putin's Petri Dish. (laughs) And, you know, what happened in 2016 was that we were focused on what Putin had done to turn off the power in Ukraine, but not really focused on what he had done in the election system, figuring there was no way he could bring that to the United States. Well, we were wrong. Well, let me go to caller Phil in Burlingame. Hi, Phil. Join us. Hi. Um, so I've worked in the defense industry and, and in Intel. And, and the, you know, when they're trolling and, and going on the web and, and you know, using uh, personality types to modify our social, you know, that's kind of allowable, right? That's just a voice of America in Russian style. But when they start penetrating election offices, and uh, breaking into the, me- the the mechanism of how we vote. Um, what's the line in the sand for a declaration of an act of war? Mm, Phil, thanks. Phil, great question. Um, so first of all, you've defined two different types of hacks quite accurately. There's the hacking of our minds, that's the influence campaign, and the hacking of our infrastructure, and that's the voting machines, the registration systems, the reporting, and so forth. Um, In the hacking of infrastructure, uh, what I've argued over the years, including in The Perfect Weapon, is that the kind of cyber conflict we have seen so far has been of the short of war variety. That is to say that everybody has carefully calibrated their attacks to make sure they don't bring about a military response. So the North Koreans went into Sony, right, and melted down 70% of their computing systems because they didn't like a movie called The Interview that envisioned the assassination of Kim Jong-un. But no one in the White House, after a brief debate, this was during the Obama years, seriously pursued the argument that attacking the computer systems of a movie production house, even a big one like Sony Pictures, constituted an act of war. Now think about that. If instead the North Koreans had had gone on the Sony tour back in the days when we all toured studios and stuck dynamite under the computer center and blew it sky high and you turned on CNN and you saw, you know, black smoke rising over um, the Hollywood Hills, I would guess that that would be characterized as an act of foreign terrorism. And no matter who was president, they would be feel compelled to make something blow up in Pyongyang. So even though the result may have been the same in this case, which is to say uh, melting down a big part of their computing power, because they use cyber rather than a kinetic weapon, we viewed it as less than an act of war, instead more like an act of sabotage or what President Obama called it at the time, digital vandalism. Now, fast forward to the election system. If you blew up an election center, yeah, probably an act of war. If you cyber attacked it, not clear to me right now how the U.S. government or the state governments would view that. Well, Phil, thanks for the question. And it's a good one 
David Sanger, we have a question from a listener that I'd love for you to gauge the, the veracity of this, and maybe it will launch us into another conversation here. But this listener writes, here's a case of foreign election interference you should address. A foreigner can register to vote in the U.S. He does not need to show proof of citizenship. How many non-citizens vote in our elections? Do you even count this? So there's a difference between foreign election interference, which connotes a state effort to destabilize, destabilize another or influence another state's actions and individual voter fraud, which historically is pretty tiny, right? As we've looked at it over the decades. Um, and so if you had a wave of people falsely applying, registering to vote and voting, at the instruction of a foreign state, you might call that foreign election interference. If a non-citizen or somebody who was somebody else who was not for some reason eligible to vote, maybe they had a felony conviction and they still can't vote, or or uh, some other reason, um, then that would go into the category of individual voter fraud. And. I mean, speaking of category of foreign interference, one of the things that I was struck by, especially in watching the documentary, was the way that different nations were cast in terms of their goals, right? So, for example, you mentioned North Korea. Um, and China also, it seemed that it was not cast as interested in sowing discord so much or stoking or exploiting divisions or planting disinformation, but that it was more interested in stealing classified information, trade secrets, and really proliferating its 5G network because of the power that that potentially has. I mean, can you talk about some of the differences sure. between the goals of foreign actors? So in cyberspace, countries tend to replicate the kind of national interests that they're pursuing on the ground in the physical world. So Russia is much more a disruptor because its only power really is to disrupt, whether it is to cause trouble in Ukraine or Belarus or Syria. They don't have an, the economic size or the capacity, other than the fact that they still own a good-sized nuclear force, um, to um, really affect the infrastructure of the world and and act as a large a large component of, of influence. They are a disruptor. Um, China's a builder. So while the Russians might think about whether they can send submarines around to cut our um, undersea cables, which connect the internet, what the Chinese are doing is laying undersea cable at a ferocious rate across the Pacific, in some cases across the Atlantic, to tie countries together sell them their 5G networks, usually at a discounted price, and basically try to build a competing infrastructure to the one the United States and the West has dominated. And that's a very different approach to the world. Now, that doesn't mean that the Chinese won't get interested in disrupting elections in the future. They've already experimented with that in a few places in Asia, in part because they saw the Russian success in 2016, and they must be saying, well, look, this is cheap and easy. But that's not the way they fundamentally think about doing this. They think about building 
a competing system. So you're basically going to have an authoritarian internet and a Western free internet. We're talking with David Sanger. David Sanger is helping us make sense of the extent of actual election interference by Russia and Iran and how to guard against election influence campaigns and giving us a broader sense of what the goals are of foreign actors in the U.S. in terms of trying to disrupt our systems. You can call us at 866-733-6786 if you have a question for David Sanger or if you want to share how concerned you are about foreign election interference, if you've been sent suspicious election information lately uh, that you'd like to know more about, or your questions about how to guard against this kind of disinformation. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We began, David Sanger, by talking about Iran, and, you know, we talked about their sort of effort to try to, if if it is them, and it likely is in terms of threatening voters with these emails that they pretended to be from the Proud Boys. Uh, but it does sound like they are, at least in the reporting that you've done, they are interested more in the Russian playbook that you just described, this disruptor playbook, trying to meddle in the election or influence the election in some way. They they are. And, you know, they have been assessed to um, prefer uh, Biden to Trump. And that would seem on its face to make sense. Joe Biden was a member of the Obama administration that reached the um, Iran uh, nuclear deal. Um, They may forget about the fact that he also was a player in the situation room in the decision by the United States to go use cyber weapons to attack Iran's uh, nuclear centrifuges in 2000. Uh, 9, 2010, the beginning of the Obama administration was the continuation of a Bush administration covert program that was codenamed Olympic Games. But in the end, Biden has said he would re-enter the Iran nuclear deal and negotiate beyond it if the Iranians did. Uh, Trump has said he um, he is pulled out of the deal. Uh, He is uh, doing everything he can to choke off the Iranian economy. And uh, he, of course, was behind the U.S. military attack that ended up killing General Soleimani, who was a very senior Quds Force uh, general, uh, in early January. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me that they favored uh, uh, Biden over over Trump. That said, they probably think that they're they have a better chance just causing chaos than actually influencing the outcome. Hmm. Do you think social media companies are doing enough? I know they're doing more. Facebook, Twitter, Google. Are they doing enough? You know, the question is both, are they doing enough and are they doing the right things within it? So, you know, in 20, compared to 2016, they're doing vastly more. 2016, they were still of the view that they, were, they owned a big pipeline. And with the exception of a few categories like child pornography, they didn't edit anything out. Now, what are you seeing them doing? They are edit, trying to edit out misinformation. They've hired 30,000 or so content reviewers around the world, although that leads to very different kinds of content being taken out in, say, Thailand than in the United States. Um, there is a big argument about how much political speech to let go, even if 
it is considered false by some because in judging that political speech is false, you're making an editorial judgment. I don't have a problem with that. I been in journalism now for nearly four decades, and we make editorial judgments every single day. But that is not the way Facebook initially understood itself or its business model. And they've had a really hard time getting there. It was just a year ago that Mark Zuckerberg um, was questioning whether or not you um, edit out Holocaust denial. And now they're doing that. Well, let me see if I can get Chi in here quickly. Chi, join us. Yes. Go right ahead. I had received an email that said that my vote has been inadvertently marked wrong when they counted it. And the email led me to another site that is telling me to confirm who I voted for. And I'm from California. And I, from what I understand, we haven't even started counting our votes yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So clearly that's, I mean, thanks for sharing that, Chi. And, and in responding to her, if you could leave us in the next, because uh, we will be ending in the next 30 seconds or so, also just with some thoughts of what we can do to guard against these kinds of things and to be thoughtful about the information we receive and share. Well, it sounds to me like you're doing the first thing, which is looking at the email and saying, this can't be right. We haven't even counted these things yet. And it's unlikely that somebody who emailed you would know how you voted anyway. So they were trying to solicit information from you uh, the way somebody tries to get your credit card number. The main thing I would say for the next um, few days uh, or the next week and a half, be patient. The counting of all these mail-in ballots is likely to overwhelm the system in many states. The first numbers you hear are going to be the numbers from people who voted on the actual voting machines. Second, recognize that the vote numbers you hear are unofficial. They don't mean a whole lot until you've got a full count and you've got an official count. And so look at how what percentage of the vote has been counted before you look at where the votes are going. David Sanger of the New York Times, thanks so much for talking with us. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.